Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host and shepherd, Jake Counts, navigating you through this crazy world that we live in. It is the 21st day of January. Thank you so much for joining us. And I am coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. Wow, an amazing turn of events since last Thursday. I was um, actually getting back in the groove of um, podcasting again. This is quite nice. And uh, I appreciate everybody sharing the uh, the message of the show. Um, I'll get into my philosophy a little bit later on in the show, but um, I have a little bit different take on um, where I think society could go and uh, how we could get there. And um, unfortunately for some of you, it is not going to fall in your predisposed right-left paradigm, but if you've been listening for long enough, you know where I'm going to fall on certain things. So... A couple of things I wanted to get into today. Um, number one, there's talks of a terrorist cell that's going to attack the Olympics. Now, if you go back through my archives, this was the same, and I don't want to say rhetoric because obviously the Olympics is a big event. We'll have something similar to this around um, the Super Bowl because it'll be a big event, and typically that's where you will have factions or groups decide that they're going to stage events to either get their point across or to show people, um, you know, how how much in or not in control the governments are, or they have a bona fide, you know, specific, you know, bone to pick with um, whatever nation state that these um, games or events are going to be held in. So going back through the archives, um, I'll repost it actually on my show. Um, within the uh, within the show notes for for podcast number twenty or fifty three, so that you guys can hear it. But it was a it was a breakdown that I did. It's actually one of my best grossing shows to date. Um, of the issues that were going on in London for the Olympics, there, they had a private security group that was running the majority of the security detail, and what was going on was an investigative journalist infiltrated um, the actual uh, security team and he decided he was going to apply for a security position and then, you know, basically report on what was going on from the inside to the layman and say, hey, here's here's what's going on on the inside and, you know, basically being able to bring to light any security glitches or any... Um, any holes so that it could um, – and he wasn't going to go to the to the public with it. He was going to go to, obviously, the commanding authority on, on the matter. And, and you guys all know how I hate that word, but that's the best way to describe it. But the, um, the perceived authority and tell them what, what the breaches were. Unfortunately, he got in there and realized it was a giant goat rope and that they were going to turn off these metal detectors for the majority of the event because – um, it wasn't going to be uh, efficient enough to get people in and out of the facilities, and it was just going to basically bog everybody down. So they were just going to have vestigial um, security checkpoints that really didn't do anything. They weren't going to check a lot of bags and all that stuff. So they basically blew the whistle on it, and everybody in London freaked out. And there were a whole bunch of um, Freemasonic um, messages and the, the site of the place that was chosen, and all these other things that were very, very interesting. So it did yield something towards um, what we saw on 9-11, which was a, um, as we know, at, at the very least it was um, failed intelligence, but um, the more in-depth research you do, there is a massive cover-up going on there, and we do know who some of the some of the people that would stand to gain would be, but that's that's for a different program. So anyway... Now with the Sochi Olympics coming up, it's going to be the same thing. Uh, obviously, Putin has said that he has got this iron ring that's out, 
and that um, there has also been a um, a threat or a veiled threat that um, somebody has already infiltrated this little um, iron ring and they're going to strike. So what I wanted to get into um, for a little bit, actually the first part of the show, and then I've got a couple of um, little tidbits and then I want to close with um, my thoughts on on marijuana legalization after what the president said on Sunday and then um, being um, basically, I guess, um, giving the false debate by his... Um, but his drugs are because obviously you want to you want to keep the keep the racket going. If it's a two hundred billion dollar industry, you want to keep the racket going. And um, unfortunately for those of you that are in law enforcement and drug enforcement, um, if you haven't done uh, the necessary homework, then you probably do think you're fighting the good fight. And I really can't sway your opinion either way because. You know, you deal with the people that are the end users. You deal with the people that are actually distributing these things. You're dealing with what you believe are people that are wrecking society. When, if you look at it, it is the um, it is the perpetuating of a culture, which I don't agree with the drug culture. So you have to separate that from the actual drug itself, which I will do later on in the broadcast to just kind of get everybody up to speed on, number one, how it became illegal, number two, a little bit of background history on it. And then we can have like a, a real legitimate debate, but we can't have an emotional debate. This has to be grammar, logic, rhetoric. We have to look at it from a very um, – just just a very common sense and, and use – you know, and the trivia method is – is one of the methods that will that will typically never fail you because your arguments will have to be sound and you can't use logical fallacies, uh, which always bring about emotional responses. But unfortunately, if you've been through the um, the state-run education system here in America, that's typically the only avenue that you know how to communicate in. So trying to change that with the show, if you don't know about logical fallacies, um, look up a website called My Logical Fallacy Is. And uh, unfortunately, this is one of those things that you're going to have to educate yourself. If you want to learn about terrorism, you're going to have to educate yourself on terrorism. I've got some books for you to read towards the end of the show, so we'll get to that as well. So let's talk about, let's talk about terrorism in general. What is terrorism? Obviously, it is an event that is, in, that is basically trying to provoke a response, to provoke terror, if you will, to provoke a reaction. So once again, large events are typically used for this because they have the biggest stage and they're going to have the best effect. And if you're looking at it from the person wanting to impose the terror, it's going to obviously give you the most bang for your buck, no pun intended with that. So the Sochi Olympics, I don't really know what's going to go on, so we're just going to table that for a second. And we're just going to talk about the actual um, terrorists themselves and who they are and, and where they come from. Because I think it's very important for us to understand in history where these groups come from, how they were funded, who's funded them. And in, these are all documented cases, by the way, so that you can go back and fact check what I've said. And I'll also put links to the articles and a couple of these I actually got from um, James Corbett of the Corbett Report, and his. Um, if you haven't seen his whole breakdown of the Muslim Brotherhood, it's actually um, it's actually very, uh, very succinct and, and very well done. So I do want to pull up a recent article that I haven't um, that I haven't had a chance to pull up here yet, and it is the Muslim Brotherhood has given has been given waivers to basically go through TSA checkpoints. And, hold on. Oh, you have to bear with me, everyone. It's been a, it's been a long afternoon, uh, especially when you have a newborn. So it's, um, it's pretty fun. But um, we're going to get there. So the Muslim Brotherhood has been given these, um, these passes on getting through TSA checkpoints. And um, I'll link you to the article. I actually pulled it up here. But... Um, it, there's nothing really to be I'll, – I'll, I'll basically just give you a once-over of the article as soon as I can get this pop-up out of the way. Um, but what it is is um, they're letting these known terrorist cells basically run free, and there's a reason for it. So um, it says 
Quoting the article, newly released records confirm that in 2012, Investigative Project on Terrorism, the IPT, report that the State Department cleared the way for visiting delegation of the Muslim Brotherhood officials to enter the country without undergoing routine inspections of U.N. Customs and Border Patrol agents. In April 2012, the visit came before the Muslim Brotherhood candidate was elected in Egypt's president, although the, the Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party had won the the plurality of the seats in the parliamentary elections. The expanded entry of the port courtesy normally reserved for high-ranking government officials and, and dignitaries. The record shows that it's sensitive but classified. So let's be clear here. Um, there are factions of the Muslim Brotherhood that are typically not going to be um, anti-West. They're actually going to be pro-West because of where they're from and, and how they actually got their start. So let's get into how the Muslim Brotherhood got their start and where did they come from. So let's go to this article here by Spike, and it's called The Truth About the Muslim Brotherhood, and once again, I will be posting all of these as well. And I'm going to skip a little bit into um, the actual founding of the group. So... The Muslim Brotherhood was founded in 1928 and went on to become the most influential political Islamicist group in the world. Such offshoots include Hamas in the Palestinian territories, and many of the Islamic factions have emerged from the Afghani-Soviet War from 1979 to 1989, which that was when um, the United States government was actually giving arms to um, Al-Qaeda, which was um, a spinoff of the Muslim Brotherhood and um, helping fund um, Osama bin Laden. Um, and it goes on to say, from the onset, the Muslim Brotherhood was a socially conservative and anti-communistic group and had potentially been a useful tool for the West, seeing as though it kept its rant and keep in check the radical anti-colonialist movements. The intermediate pro uh, procurer to the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1920s was a Islamicist-leading organization called the Society of Propaganda and Guidance, in which it tactically supported by then the British colonies in Egypt. And also the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, was used by um, uh, Adolf Hitler as well, but um, we're not going to get into that also. See, history is absolutely crazy, but you have to understand all this stuff to, to see um, when you see regular Western television – and they talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and all these other factions that are um, Al-Qaeda and things like that that are all over um, the, the, uh, the Middle East. You, you have to be able to understand the Wahhabist sects. You have to be able to understand all the different groups that are involved. Otherwise, it'll just be a big cluster, you know what, and then you'll just basically turn like most of the Tea Party people that I run into that just say parking lot everybody, which is you know no diplomacy whatsoever. So continuing, they are considered in the society to be a useful counterweight of the anti-colonialist groups uh, keen to appeal to the British. The society's journal, The Lighthouse, met with British approval in articles denouncing Egypt's nationalists and atheists as atheists and infidels. See, one of the things that you're going to learn, and um, you can actually get this from a couple of different books, but one of the things that you'll learn is that typically your um, – your internationalists, your quote-unquote globalists, as Alex Jones will call them, they will typically fund anything that they can to thwart nationalism, especially in a Middle Eastern country. Why? Because you don't want to give them any ideas about uh, being a secular government, to having something all by themselves. So if you use the proxies of destabilization, like was discussed in the Bilderberg Group of 1970, and we'll get into that here in a minute, if you use these um, these radical um, Islamicist groups, which you once again fund, and that came out this year as well, and I'll also link to that article, that the United States government is actually funding al-Qaeda in Syria to destabilize that region against uh, Assad, which obviously Assad is not a great guy. But once again, this is the divide-and-conquer strategy which has been deployed um, many times over, and we as um, we as enlightened individuals need to understand that this is a tactic not only used from a Islamicist perspective, but is also used on the home front here um, with the Democratic and Republicans and the the extremely polarized left and right. Um, you once again not utilizing any 
any of the trivia method in order to have a debate with one another. It is all emotionally charged rhetoric that gets thrown back and forth, and that's typically um, what you get is you will have no compromise, you will have no uh, agreement reached, and you will have no agreeing to disagree. It'll just be arguments, and arguments get us absolutely nowhere. It actually gets us further down the road in enslavement. So, continuing, one graduate of the society, Hassan Alabana, later founded the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1920s and to the early 1950s. The Britons and the Muslim Brotherhood had a complex relationship, flirting between hostility and covert workings together to achieve shared interests. Robert Dreyfus points out that in the Devil's Game, the United States helped unleash fundamental Islam. Yeah, obviously. Both the Muslim Brotherhood and British intelligence forces were, and were, and for quite different reasons, suspicious of growing nationalist movements in the, for Egypt, Egyptian independence. Once again, never bodes well for the bankers. Divide and conquer. Keep that oil flow coming, and especially when you can buy off the, um, the radical jihadis. In 1952, um, Nasser took part or took power in Egypt in a military coup that ousted the West Man um, on the ground, King Farouk. Nasser was the who was the latter president from 1956 to 1970, instituted a secular republic, later called Arab Socialism, in which the period of Nasserism or the anti-Nasser Brotherhood continued. To be looked upon as elements by the West, first by the British and then later by the U.S., as a potential rein-in for Nasser's power and ambitions. In his book *Unholy Wars: Afghanistan, America, and the International Terrorism*, Cooley describes how Washington's foreign policy regime viewed Nasser's Soviet-friendly Egypt as a handmaiden of communism. Obviously, if it's in this time period. Um, and through the Cold War, you're, all you have to do is – all you had to do was say communism, and the American people through their conditioning, um, once again through their divide-and-conquer mentality, as well as the Soviets too. Now, the Soviets were in the same kind of boat. They were all told that you have to stop American imperialism. So, um, so it, it was basically two sides played off against each other, and once again, um, read um, – Good God, read any one of um, Zygmunt Brzezinski's books, and he'll kind of go into detail. But uh, The Grand Chessboard is one that I just started reading, and that really does go into the breakdown of how they control not only the drug trade but control um, secular governments. And Anyway, so anyway, continuing, the U.S. observes about keen work with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, Saudi Arabia, and others developing an anti-Nasser, anti-Soviet Islamic pact. Uh, to this end, the, Brit the Brotherhood, along with his other Islamist groups, started to receive covert, usually modest American aid engaged in local and anti-Soviet or, local or uh, Soviet communists. As Cooley says, the fact that Islamist groups such as the Brotherhood were resolutely anti-communist led the Americans to flirtation with the Muslim groups and also that had them politically – or excuse me, had – the politicized in their region. Washington's focus, of course, changed during this period, during this during the seizing of the Suez Canal in 1956. It was temporarily backed by Nasser, um, by chasing the British and the French and the Israelis by launching a war against Egypt following Nasser's announcement that he wanted to nationalize the Suez Canal. Anytime that you have anything, whether it's the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, if you um, study history again and look at um, Jimmy Carter, what he wanted to do with the um, with the Panama Canal, and then when Reagan came in, his first deal, what he did with it, and then um, now it's given over to the Chinese. So um, if you want to know how the world works, man, um, just follow these people. I mean I'm sorry, but follow um, who funds the terrorist groups, find out who's going to benefit – and then also um, find out the connections between the uh, the ruling kleptocracy and um, typically your corporations, which I'll get into here in a bit. But that's all I wanted to do for this um, for this little article to give you kind of a background on the the Muslim Brotherhood. So now we can really jump into um, Western intelligence and how they've influenced the Muslim Brotherhood. Once again, going back to the article saying that these guys were let in. Of course, they're going to be let in because they're on the payroll. They're on the payroll for the internationalists. They are typically, once again, you can't blanket every group 
um, but there are sub-factions that are, um, that are friendly to the West and that the West uses to destabilize the nations in order to be able to insert leaders that they want to insert, like Operation Ajax, where the United States government admittedly, with the CIA, went in and overthrew Mossadegh, who was a democratically elected leader of Iran, and put in the Shah because of his um, Western ties and also because Mossadegh was going to promote nationalism. So never never a good idea, never a good career decision, I guess, if you're a Middle East dictator and you want to promote nationalism. Oh, you mean like, um, like uh, not Mubarak, but um, Gaddafi? Gaddafi wanted to nationalize. Huh. And he also wanted to trade oil in either euros or something other than the U.S. dollar. That'll typically get you killed as well. All right, so um, another article here, um, basically going back and, and giving a little um, solidity to the um, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and working with the West. And I'm not going to read a couple of paragraphs of this because you guys can read on your own. Um, it says, like it or not, radical Islam is on the rise, and the group spreading um, this rise is the Muslim Brotherhood. Wherever political Islam is gaining ground, it's almost guaranteed to have the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood. Take the Gaza Strip, for, for instance. Most people know that in June of 2007, Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip. Most people did not know that Hamas was an offshoot of Egypt's branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and Gaza has also public, publicized the Muslim Brotherhood's success. However, the group's experience, other victories in the media um, has said little about. In 2005, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, made significant political gains in Egypt, increasing the number of independent parliamentaries from 15 to 88. In Jordan, the Muslim Brotherhood's political wing, known as the Islamic Action Front, who we actually put a base there and we actually train these crazy guys in Jordan. So... Um, has become Jordan's political establishment, posing 17 out of the 110 parliamentaries. Without a doubt, the Muslim Brotherhood's influence is starting to be felt. To I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead a little bit. Here we go. This gives you a little idea of the establishment and how it works. To say the least, the Muslim Brotherhood is political ascent is very impressive. However, without aid from such powerful uses, Brotherhood may never have been more of a group of marginalized religious faculties. The hidden hands of such powerful forces can be seen and felt before World War II. The British travel writer um, Frank Stark. Stark was not just a writer. She was also an agent of British intelligence. Stark used British intelligence to foster an alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, Brotherhood collaboration with Western intelligence continued with the alliance of the Brotherhood and the CIA, which began around 1955, according to former CIA agent Miles Copeland. Around that time, McGarry, um, America began looking at the Muslim equivalent of Billy Graham, hoping to find a charismatic individual to influence the Arab world. When this failed, the agency began foeing ties with the British and or foeing ties with the CIA, and continuing here, skipping ahead. Okay, here we go. This is the fun stuff. The power elite officially endorsed the Muslim Brotherhood of May of 1979 at the Bilderberg Group meeting held in Austria. At the meeting, British Islamicist expert Dr. Bernard Lewis suggested that endorsing the Muslim Brotherhood would allow a Western elite to promote balkanization of the entire Muslim region near the tribal and regional lines. Once again, balkanization is divide and conquer, um, playing two sides off against each other to um, achieve the synthesis which is destabilization, which is what they always want in this region. This balkanization process would result in a rise of various autonomous groups spreading chaos through the Near East, in which Lewis termed the Ark of Crisis. The chaos would eventually spill over into the Muslim regions of the Soviet Union, which would <coughs> consist of the area, um, this is not in the article, but this consists of the area where the um, Zarnev brothers, um, supposedly of the Boston bombing, were from as well. This would help Western elites counter the Soviet moves to become the world's sole hegemony, and thus preventing the Cold World uh, dialect rivalry that has been so advantageous for the world oligarchs. The power elite support of the Muslim Brotherhood became began one year earlier when Carter appointed Builder Group Bird Group attendee. George Ball to the head of the White House Iron Task Force. It fell under the National Security Advisor of, guess who, Zygmunt Brzezinski. 
Ball recommended pulling the support of the Iran's leader at the time, the Shah of Iran, and suggested that the Shah's opposition, uh, the infamous uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, in the Muslim Brotherhood movement. All right, so the, the rest is what I talked about a little bit earlier. And it was basically because, and I'll skip ahead because this is where all this stuff went down, and John Perkins gets into this in Confessions of an Economic Hitman as well. Lindner refused Iran's oil production, only taking 3 million barrels a day, which had agreed to a minimum of 5 million barrels per day. So basically, he's shutting them down financially. So financial terrorism. Yep. So that is the end of that, and that is the end of that segment. So very nicely done. Okay, so let's skip ahead a little bit here. Uh, shifting gears, how much wealth is a lot of wealth? That's a good question. When we talk about the power elite, what are we talking about? Well, <clears throat> one of the fancy places that these jackbooted jackasses like to go is called Davos. Davos is a World Economic Summit. So if you ever and uh, if you read Superclass, he talks about Davos a lot and just the completely different uh, mindset that these people have. But you know, side issue. Um, and this is an article out of The Guardian. So how much money is a lot of money? I posted a link on my website that you guys can check out. And um, I think it's the first new post that I have. I'll also post it um, again in this in the show link so you guys can just click reference it there. But it shows the gigantic wealth discrepancy that is um, here in the United States. And it's astronomical. Now, am I a free market and um, anarcho-capitalist? Absolutely. Do I think that we can get there right now? Not even a chance. What do we do? Obviously, you can try to, you know, mitigate the system by getting off the grid and, you know, changing in foreign currencies and stuff like that and utilizing your own currency and um, utilizing Bitcoin and alternative means of trade. But unfortunately, we're, we're kind of in a hammerlock. So, we have to think of – what's the best way to put this? Tactful ways to approach these people, and what's really coming to a head is it's either going to be an economic catastrophe or an economic reset, which will be just another wealth transfer to the super elite because it will typically be your government coming and selling you out and saying that we need to bail them out, which once again, if you understand what a bailout is, bailing out somebody – means that they're going to give them money from the Federal Reserve and then sign you and your children and your grandchildren onto the bill through taxes and you know wage slavery. So anyway, so the only thing that I think we really have um, – so my philosophical standpoint, I'm a true voluntarist. I, I believe in anarcho-capitalism um, if the world was pure. Currently, it is not pure, so we have to take strides to get there. Do we utilize government to get there? I don't know. Do we utilize withdrawal? That would be my option. My option would be withdrawal from the system completely because if you don't feed the system, if you don't give the system any power, and if you don't give the system, more importantly, any money or your, or your um, as they like to call it, your energy. Um, that's also what Karl Marx calls it, your energy. Um, excuse me, that was uh, John Smith of Wealth of the Nations. That's what he calls it, your energy or your, your, um, your work. If we don't give it any of that, then we actually might be able to to mitigate some of this stuff. Um, I'm glad I scheduled some overtime because I might need it. Anyway, I'm going to talk really fast here, but here is the headline from The Guardian, and it says, 85 of the richest people as, are as wealthy as the poorest half of the world. Basically, they control 50% of the wealth. They also control 50% of the stock market. But hey, everything's fine, man. Fox News didn't tell me this the other day. Everything's good. Come on. Listen, deregulation's great. That's fine. We're good. All right, so I'm going to read through this article very quickly, and then we're going to go to the um, my, my thoughts on marijuana. So, the wealthiest people in the world aren't knowingly traveling by bus, but they fancy they change in this of scenery with the 85 richest people on the globe, um, whom between them control as much wealth as, of course, half of the global population all put together. Yeah, that, that, that seems fair. Yeah, they're not con men or anything. They're not, you know, oligarchs or, no, nah, they're fine. Could squeeze into one single double-decker bus, the extent of which the so much wealth has, has become 
corralled by a virtual handful of so-called global elite, was exposed in a new report from Oxfam on Monday. It warned that those 85 richest people across the globe shared a combined wealth of 1 trillion euros, as much as the poorest 3.5 billion people on the planet. Completely fair. I'm sure they worked really hard for that money. Sure, it wasn't schemes or whatever. Nah, it's fine. They don't own banks or anything. They don't own, you know, central banks that loan your government money. They don't own those. Oh, wait, they do. Sorry. Uh, you can cite Carol Quigley on that one. Uh, the wealth of the 1% richest people amounts to uh, 110 trillion or 65 times as much as the poorest half of the world added to the developing charity. And the fears of the concern of the global economic resources being threatened and political sustainability and driving up social tensions. Oh, really? You think? You think they're flying around in jet copters and we got like half the world starving? We lose two, we lose 20,000 people a day due to uh, starvation? Yeah. That's a good number to think about. Think about filling up a, um, here, here's a good visual for you. Think about filling up. A, um, a basketball stadium every day and then blowing it up. And that's how many people die from starvation around the world. It's okay, though. Everything's fine. Fox News is telling me it's good. The children reminded that the depths of wealth inequality is a political leadership and the top business people <coughs> ahead of the snowy peaks of Davos for the World Economic Forum. Few, if any, will be arriving on anything more as common as a bus with private jets and copters pressed to into service as many of the world's most powerful convened to discuss the state of global economy for a four-day hectic meeting, seminars, parties, and ex- at an exclusive ski resort. Oh, yes, don't you just feel terrible for them. Winnie Barre, um, the Oxfam executive director who attended Davos' meeting, said, It's a staggering that in the 21st century, half of the world's population, that is three and a half billion people, own no more than a tiny elite whose number could fit comfortably into a double-decker bus. Oxfam also argues that this is no accident, saying that the growing inequality is driven by a power grab by wealthy elites. No, come on. This sounds like something that I've said for the past two years, but I'm a conspiracy theorist. Or do I just read history books and understand how all this crap works? Have co-opted the political process and rigged the rulers of the economic system in their favor. No. Have I said that before? I think so. Man, we're getting some people to wake up here. This could be dangerous. No wonder these guys are all freaking out and buying bunkers. I would be too. In the report entitled Working for the Few, summary here, Oxfam warned that the fight against poverty could not be won unless the wealth inequality was tackled. And that's what I said earlier. Widening inequality is is creating a vicious cycle where wealth and power are increasingly concentrated in the hands of the few, leaving the rest of us to fight over the crumbs on the table. Yeah, and I'll post the rest of this article. This is awesome. I mean, it's just I mean, this is just like I wrote it. This is awesome. So anyway, do I think that we can get to wealth inequality through anarcho capitalism? Not right now. Unfortunately we can't. Withdrawal from the system, take away the energy from the beast. Yes. Uh, that is um, that is something we're going to have to really look at. If you look at a anarcho-capitalist society by creating something uh, parallel to the private central banking of all and all of this other garbage, um, yeah, that's um, that's where I was going. This guy says that agorism is the best way. Absolutely, create something off their uh, off their grid. Be self-sustainable. Create your own little pockets of society. But um, do I think that we have won the hearts and minds on that? No, because the status quo is too damn easy, everybody. And that is the problem. The status quo is something that um, that people will fall in love with because it's right there. It's very convenient. You mean I would have to go grow my own food? You mean I would have to go do X, Y, and Z? But I can just go to Kroger and I can get all this stuff. So it's a very different uh, mindset and once again if you've had your 15,000 hours of public education then this is probably you probably already switched my program off you have no idea who the Muslim Brotherhood is you probably just want to go watch football this weekend but that's okay because we're going to need some of you guys out there too 
we um we love um we love engaging in dialogue. Once again, you cannot engage in um don't engage in emotional dialogue. Don't even don't even waste your time. All right. So for the last 25 minutes, transitioning into this. Oh man, I'm gonna read this little caption here real quick. Um, yeah, he's. Um, I got a guy in the chat room talking about Bitcoin. I I enjoy Bitcoin, but the only thing I don't like about it is we don't know who started it. And um, the elite have said for years that they want to go to a full digital currency with nothing backing it. So that scares me. But I own Bitcoin, so therefore I am eating my own words. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into Cuomo saying that he doesn't want. Um, actually, I'll just touch on it. Since pro-life people and, and pro-gun people and anti-gay people are not welcome in his state. So, whatever, dude. You guys can have it. New York, you guys have that guy. Limit your magazines to 10 rounds. Do all that stuff. You guys have fun. I will take my tools of freedom and liberty, and um, I'll enjoy them. But it's okay, though. You can dial 911. The cops will show up in 10 minutes. It's fine especially when somebody's breaking in your house. It's good. And I'm closing out all... Oh, forgot to mention this. Um, from the terrorist perspective, I, I did find the uh, FBI plots where they, uh, they basically had uh, 22 supposed terror attacks that the FBI basically funded the entire operation, set up the guy, cooked the bomb, gave it to him, told him, you know, whatever. It's, it's a joke. Um, also, uh, the Terror Factory, which I'll put links to, inside the FBI's manufactured war on terrorism. I'll uh, put that one on there as well, so you guys can go educate yourself on um, on how this um, on how this stuff really works. So, um, yeah, cool. Um, this guy's wanting to call in. Yeah, go ahead and call in, man. Six zero two seven five three nineteen sixteen, and then I'll um, I'll pull you up here in a minute. And uh might pull you up in overtime. So, um, yeah, go ahead and call in if you like. I'd love to have a little conversation about um, anarcho-capitalism. It's always fun. But, um, once again, agorism is the way to go, but that's a tough sell to people. All right, so my thoughts on pot. Number one, um, let's get into a little bit of the history of marijuana. Oh, this is this ought to be fun. And um, for those of you playing the home game, if you are not a marijuana advocate, and that doesn't, you don't have to be one, once again, use logic and um, rhetoric in order, to come to a, um, in order to come to a conclusion that might be able to, um, to be sustained through a um, political debate. Uh, don't just be emotional about it just because your pastor says it's bad, drugs are bad, like Mr. Mackey, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean so. So let's talk about where this devil drug came from. And I'm going to cite a uh, source called uh, BruceAllenBullock.com. I'll put a... Uh, he looks like he's, a, he's an attorney. And um, I think he's in uh, Maryland or something. It uh, looks like Minneapolis. But I'm going to post a link to his site because he does a really good job of you know, giving a brief history of, of, of pot and stuff that I've already talked about on the show. But enough blabbling. Let's, let's get on to it. So where did pot come from? Um, pot has actually been around, it used to be called cannabis, and it's actually been around since about 7,000 B.C. was the very original sightings of this um, medicinal, um, medicinal herb. And I'm going to refer to it for what it is. It's a medicinal herb with multiple facetal uses. And um, so it was used by the Chinese, the Greeks, and the Egyptians from anything from stomach aches to cramps to pain, but um, also had very, very good functional uses. Um, it originated in Asia, much like um, heroin and opium and all these other things. And it was really interesting. They still don't know how it got to America, but this would also support my claim that the Chinese actually um, landed on America long before um, your Rockefeller history books told you that Christopher Columbus founded America. But once again, that's some that's some under underground history. But we'll we haven't had any documentation to support it, but with the with the size of the navy they had and the ships and everything there there's no once again logical explanation why china wouldn't have been able to make it across um and at least hit uh, california or seattle or something so continuing um 
the first uses of medicinal marijuana started about 1800, and um, it was once again used as a as a fiber as well. So it made anything from rope, um, cloth, paper. Um, also, the Constitution was written on hemp paper, and uh, it also made um, it also made um, sails for ships because the the ink and stuff would not fade. And it would just basically um, – it would stand up because it was so durable. Now, moving into the 1920s, um, pot became increasingly more um, widely utilized – or, excuse me, cannabis became increasingly more widely utilized due to the prohibition of alcohol. But once alcohol prohibition ended in 1933, they, um, the, the, usage of, um, the usage of cannabis – um, sharply declined because people got back on the uh, alcohol kick. So what does that mean? Typically what that says to me is that if you legalize this um, this thing that used to be um, medicine for people, and um, yes, the potency has changed, and yes, there's all these different factors in it, but um, making something illegal gives it a whimsical and a there is a psychological effect to something that is forbidden, that will typically lead, lead um, marijuana into a quote-unquote gateway drug, which has never been scientifically proven, but they just like to say that because it's what the D.A.R.E. people have told you, it's what they've heard their whole life, and typically people have never researched how this stuff became illegal. So that's the next part of the fun, the fun and entertaining side, which I will get into here in a minute. So... Samuel Rayburn was a um, was the gentleman that was on the on the floor once the Marijuana Stamp Act was actually introduced. And what happened was this um, this bill was basically kept in secret for a couple of years. It gets put on the table, and it's called the Marijuana Stamp Act of 1937. Nobody had any idea that they were going to ban cannabis. They didn't even know because it was either known as um, hemp, ganja, um, or hash. Or cannabis, obviously, or hashish. So, so what happens is, is this gets put on the table. Um, all the basically all the people in Congress look at each other and say, "What is this bill about?" Um, and then, <clears throat> and then Rayburn, Sam Rayburn, replied, "This, I don't know. It has something to do with a thing called marijuana. I think it's a narcotic of some kind." And when asked if the American Medical Association supported the bill, a committee member falsely replied that it did. So there's a lot of shady stuff that goes on to the passage of this actual Stamp Act, which makes this um, said plant um, illegal. So who are the people behind this? So we know that the finagling goes on in Congress. You know the NDAA with Obama. Hey, I'm I'm not going to sign it. I'm going to I'm going to let this go. Um you know, I I I don't I don't want to secretly arrest American citizens. Turns out that he signed it and not only did he sign it, but he wrote that provision in or his attorneys wrote that provision in and um that's what we're we're really looking at here. So so anyway, let's talk about briefly, and then I'll uh, and then I'll go to your phone call. I'll see you on hold, man. I'll get to you in a second. Let's talk about briefly the the people involved in getting this getting this um, plant um, criminalized. Henry Anslinger, who was the um, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Uh, argued in the 30s that there were increasing reports on people smoking marijuana, which were – majority of them were false reports, and this was on the History Channel, people. I mean, good God, it can't be even more blatantly in your face. He ran false ads in papers paying people to say that people were killed by somebody on marijuana. So what they did is they created a, a narcotic out of nothing because, once again, alcohol prohibition was winding down. They understood that they were going to need something else to preserve their Federal Bureau of Narcotics or their Drug Enforcement Agency. Those types of things, they have to have that going because that is a very, very steep budgeted item, and they can't just get rid of it because heroin, cocaine, that stuff isn't nearly as – actually, that stuff was still legal back then. That wasn't even um, – heroin and cocaine weren't even illegal until 1970. just shows you how backwards this whole thing is. Um, so puts out false reports of all this stuff going on. 
and says that um and says that there is a there is a rise in and then they put out uh, obviously they put out reefer madness and all these other things so Anslinger, along with Melton and um, Andrew Melton, Mellon and William Randolph Hearst um, and the DuPont family, decide that they're going to push this legislation because it's going to really, really impact their industry, which is the um, which is the clothing industry. So they had a lot of skin in the game. Once again, always try, try to follow the money. But um, Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury and was the wealthiest man in America and was heavily invested in DuPont synthetic fiber nylon, which was a competitor of hemp. And yeah, I did get that off of Wikipedia, but you know, so so be it. I already knew all this stuff. Um, so anyway, and also um, uh, Lester Dewey, who created um, the paper, said that um, hemp herds is paper-making material. Hemp actually came from or actually the name cannabis came from canvas, which means made of hemp. So it, it, it's, it's all crazy. It's all crazy. So all of these guys together decided that they were going to put the kibosh on hemp because it was going to really, really invade on their profitability for their new product that they were going to push. And once they got all this stuff in place, then all they have to do is typically, you know how this works. Once you get a law put into place, it's really, really hard in America because mainly um, no politicians ever have any balls, or, nor do they even read the bills for the most part. So once you get something on the books, it's on the books. It ain't coming off. And that's what's so amazing. So Barack Obama, let's, I'm just going to wrap this up because I do want to go to the caller and I got a few minutes left. So Barack Obama says that cannabis is no more harmful for you than alcohol or tobacco smoke, which is actually false. It is a lot less harmful for you than alcohol and tobacco, especially tobacco and alcohol too. Alcohol is the number one as far as um, damage to yourself, your personal person, and endangering others. It is the number one drug on the planet, yet it's perfectly legal um, mushrooms, of course, or hallucinogens are at the very, very bottom because they actually promote, um, they actually promote thought and, and activate you know, places in the brain that aren't active. So that's definitely a really, really bad one. We better put that up at the number one list. That is a, um, that is a class one narcotic. So anyway, my whole take on this marijuana thing, do I think that marijuana will be legal in the United States? Absolutely. We have no other way to go. Because now the facade is going to fall with the invention of the internet, with people being able to, being able to organize and be able to, to be belong to places like normal and 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 seeing what's going to happen in Denver and um, and in Washington State once the honeymoon period's over. Obviously, it's just going to be like alcohol prohibition. Once the honeymoon period was over and alcohol prohibition, it was the same kind of thing. Six months to a year, everybody goes bananas, everybody flocks, I mean, it just, it just happens. But that's human nature. I mean, you tell us that we can't do something, then you legalize it, and everybody thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Of course, you're going to have some people that abuse it. It's just like anything else. So understand where we're going with this and how we can do it. Um, you can do it through organization, kind of like what we were talking about before. You can do it through organization. You can also do it through... Um, through um, meeting people and, and having this dialogue that um, and use, utilizing the facts, you know, utilizing the talking points that I'm giving you, and these aren't talking points per se. These are facts, so that when you have your when you have your um, trivium-based uh, conversation, where you start out with your grammar, we'll define marijuana, we'll define hemp. Do you define marijuana as hemp, or do you define? I mean, because that's a very distinctive. Um, that's a very big distinction because hemp is has no psychoactive you know ingredients to it whatsoever and it's one of the greatest um, it's one of the greatest products on the planet you can make oils with it you can make biofuels with it damn Henry Ford was going to make a um, he was going to make a model T that ran on hemp oil but that got shot down so anyway um, this it's just been absolutely crazy so do I, at the end of the day, do I believe that this stuff is going to happen? Yes. Do I believe it's going to be a long, drawn-out process? Probably in a state like Georgia where I live, where, um, where people follow their pastor and they don't even read their Bibles and they don't even understand what Jesus was trying to preach when he said, um, have no kings, have no masters. You know, um, Romans 13, um, render under Caesar. Those types of people, yeah, they're going to be the last ones to go kicking and screaming. And no offense to you, Southern Baptists, 
you guys are never going to go along with this. You probably think that the end times have already passed or something. I don't know. But um, not taking shots at anybody. Just just have an open mind and and look at where these things came from. Look at the history behind it. Look what happened. And just quit with the propaganda. Don't come and spew your propaganda at me thinking it's going to change my mind because I have facts and history on my side and you're really not going to sway it. So anyway, now that I've uh, pretty much wrapped up this, i got about nine minutes left. I do want to have this conversation because it looks like it's going to be a good one. Um, caller, you are you are on the air. Thanks for calling in, man. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, wait one second. Uh, got to grab something real quick. I think it's my uh, volume a little bit better now. Yeah, we're we're coming in good, man. Here, um, I'll make some awesome. adjustments. I'm sorry for the background noise because my sister's sacking, so uh, my bad. Um, what you know, you were talking about uh, agorism, and and I'm saying, and it's such a great thing. I really do, I I really do try to actually say to people, all right, go out there, do what you need to, go uh, use, uh, try to opt out of the state because if we don't kind of comply ourselves to the state, use not our Federal Reserve note, but our real valued money. Even though I, I have like Bitcoins and Dogecoin, it's a new cryptocurrency. But um, what happens is basically I can use all that stuff. I can use all those great things, and then I can just use it. And then just instead of Federal Reserve notes, I can use that for my fam- I can use that for my family. I can use everything else. No, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, I had Bitcoin, and I promoted um. I don't know if you saw it, but I did um, I did Alternative Currency Day last year on the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve, and I tried to get people to opt out of the system, giving them ways to do it, um, utilizing Bitcoin on sites like GIFT, G-Y-F-T, where you can utilize Bitcoin to buy gift cards. So you're technically not buying Federal Reserve notes, even though you're utilizing them to purchase something. You're not going through the system in order to do so. Uh, you're not getting taxed on it. You know, you're not doing these types of things. Uh, going to um, going to BitShop and and other and other interactive markets. Uh, I got all my Christmas presents there for my wife and and for my family. I got all this stuff done, and I never had to use um, I never had to use the central banker currency. So I 100% agree with you. What what else you got out there, man? Well, I mean, like uh, about the whole marijuana thing. Guess where I'm living? I'm basically living in Colorado. And right okay. now, I see. So, what is, it, what is it like out in Colorado right now uh, after the decriminalization? What is it like? Uh, I don't really see very much of like more of a change. I I really didn't personally see anything, uh, not yet, um, not really. So. And that's you but, know that's kind of what that's kind of what I would figure would be either it's going to be a a little bit of an influx of people going out there to try it for the first time because it's legal and all that other stuff, or it's just going to be business as usual because it was already it was already a um, a medicinal uh, state, correct? Yes, I think so. I don't yeah, really so remember. Typically, typically with a state, even if they did it in like California. Um, you know, getting a medicinal license in California is very, very simple. So I, I just think that marijuana is the way the way that pretty much everything is going to go eventually, and that is, you know, with state intervention because you know the state to keep their, they want to, they want to make money, man. The state has to make money, and they have to make things illegal so that we have to purchase them on the black market so they can lock us up and put us in private prisons. I mean, that's just part of the game, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But, I mean, like, the whole decriminalization of uh, marijuana right now, I feel absolutely happy, but even though, uh, yeah, I don't really care because, you know what, fuck the law smoking anyways. <laughs> uh, too. Oh, yeah. That's what, the, that's what one of my good buddies used to say all the time, man, and um, I used to be part of the Adam versus the Man podcast, and and you know, from a from an agorist perspective, I can understand that. And I and I would, uh, you know, it's one of those things you have to you have to make a stand on what you believe in. Do you believe freedom? If you yeah. believe in, you need to exercise your tools of freedom. And if one of your tools of freedom is to not participate or to participate in non-state sponsored drugs, then go ahead and do that. But as long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. But uh, I'm gonna let you go. Call. Yeah, you got any last words? 
So you were around the Adam versus Man podcast. Wow. I, I gotta ask. How's the guy? Just out of curiosity. I I actually have never spent um, more than a couple of minutes with Adam in physical person. So um, I I actually helped um, remotely for the most part. So I did the, I did shows with him. I did shows with Daryl um, remotely. I did a show with my friend Jacob Yannicky that uh, that used to come on the show quite a bit. But um, and he's he's a big Bitcoin advocate as well. So never really got to spend a lot of time with Adam. But from from all the people that I know that have spent quality time with him, he's a good dude. He just um, you know, unfortunately, the state put him under the jail for a little while, and now he's got to uh, got to serve some some probation. But um, it was a lot better ruling than than I thought he was going to get personally. I thought he was going to get one more year or something like that. Yeah, so. yeah I thought it was pretty awesome too. So, uh, well, I gotta go. Uh, definitely, yeah, I ever say that the state did something right, but I think that they did something semi right. But hey, thanks for calling, man, and uh, feel free to call in anytime. Especially if you hear a topic that you want to weigh in on, feel feel free to give us a buzz, man. We love having you. All right, dude. All right, thank you. Yep. All right, man. So, um, so that's the end of the show, everybody. Um, once again, I do like taking live calls because it's it uh, it keeps the show fun, keeps me on my toes, and and conversations are always better than monologues, I think. So. Once again, um, that's going to do it for the podcast tonight. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Ooh, let me get into this really quick. Wall Street Advisor says this. Actual unemployment is 37.2%, and the mystery index is worse in 40 years. Oh, come on. Yep. See, when you get your inflated numbers by your state, they're basically telling you that uh, unemployment's low. It's at 7.2%. In Georgia, it's at 7.9%. It's the lowest it's been in 10 years, but once again, that doesn't uh, include the people that have actually been off, um, that have been off or actually off unemployment and um, have actually dropped out of the workforce. So um, it's really coming to a head now. Um, couple that with the uh, article I read before about the 85 top people that own um, just as much wealth as the bottom uh, 3.5 billion people, and man, is that a um, that's a um, what is it, a powder keg. That's the word I was searching for. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the caller for calling in. You guys feel free to call in. I know that you guys are out there listening. I see the numbers, and it's more than just one person, I promise you. Uh, it's definitely more than one person listening live. Uh, be sure to check us out on Liberty Movement Radio. We'll be coming live on there um, this Thursday night. Um, check me out on um, FRN Radio as well. Um, I think they run my show um, in the afternoon starting at 11 o'clock. But uh, be sure to check out the website, wearenotcattle.net. I'm going to be putting up new content every day from now on, along with the show notes from this podcast, where you'll be able to find all of the goodies that I talked about here, the, um, the history of uh, cannabis, uh, why marijuana is illegal, and all the, all the um, other sites about terrorism, where the Muslim Brotherhood came from, and also um, links to um, John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Uh, if you want to find a copy of Tragedy and Hope, which I referenced earlier, you can find that on my tab called um, Under Things You Should Know, and it's called uh, Books That May Interest You. And um, also we'll put a link to uh, Terror Factory, which I just downloaded to Audible, which is, a, um, which is a, um, an application that I highly recommend if you spend a lot of time in the car like I do. So once again, everybody, we are not cattle.net. You can uh, link to my Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter there. And um, be sure to uh, send me any questions you got on the podcast, anything that you want me to cover. Contact is down there, or you can just contact me at wearenotcattle at gmail.com. Remember, everybody, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. And like the uh, like the caller said, let's get into some some agorist stuff here. You know, get out of the uh, get out of the wage slave system. And uh, also recommend Peace Revolution podcast, um, Journalistic Revolution, um, Trip Hughes Show, Post Politics. Um, everybody on Liberty Movement Radio is good people. So um, always check those guys out. And um, pretty soon I'm going to have Josh Wiley back on the show as soon as I can, um, as soon as I can round him up, and we'll get into some uh, some heavier stuff. So thanks everybody for listening. Once again, get a friend, get informed, and get involved, and we'll see you on Thursday night, 9 o'clock. Tell everybody about it. Let's have some fun. Take care, everybody.